first immediately or you will be subject to arrest a boss ain't nothing but a thief on a time loan 128 before you play nintendo on some shooters so put the bridge down and feed us to the killer bees we get what we deserve like bury me with my mp3s write my manifesto in 72 dpi life's just a game you got cheated never learned i write these songs every bridge that ain't been burned for every cop car that ain't Welcome to This Is America, February 13th, 2023. On today's episode, first we speak with anti-fascist journalist Vishal Singh about being kicked off of Twitter, covering the far right in Southern California, and how Trump is rushing to double down on anti-trans hatred. We then switch to our discussion, where we unpack recent attacks by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis against the LGBTQ community in schools, universities, and beyond. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. Norfolk Southern Company trains carrying toxic chemicals derailed and then exploded into flames outside of the small town of East Palestine, Ohio, leading to an evacuation as officials released vinyl chloride, a colorist gas linked to various cancers, in order to avoid another explosion. The same company behind the derailment has lobbied to oppose new brake rules for trains and regulations on the transportation of hazardous waste materials. Many have pointed out that the rail industry has resisted fixing and crumbling infrastructure and updating safety standards, while grinding employees down. Norfolk Southern is also involved in funding the Cop City Project in Atlanta, Georgia, which threatens to destroy the Walani Forest. New reports show that along with a barrage of anti-LGBTQ bills targeting everything from gender-affirming healthcare to drag shows, throughout 2022 there is a rise in attacks against pride celebrations, drag shows, and LGBTQ events. As Salon wrote, a number of drag events targeted by threats and protests in person were first targeted by right-wing media outlets like Fox News and The Daily Wire, and social media accounts like Libs of TikTok. And as we discuss in this episode, while Trump doubles down on attacking trans people while calling for a national ban on gender-affirming healthcare, in Florida, DeSantis is banning black history courses, removing books from libraries, and placing loyalists on college school boards. In 2023 already, 100 bills targeting LGBTQ rights and queer life, from transgender healthcare to drag shows, have been filed in 22 states. According to Mapping Police Violence, police have already killed at least 133 people from January 1st to February 7th, 2023. That's a 20% increase compared to this period last year. In late January, protests across the U.S. broke out following the release of footage of the brutal police beating and killing of Tyree Nichols. In Memphis, Tennessee, the I-55 bridge was shut down by demonstrators as militant marches took place in New York, Portland, Oregon, and Los Angeles, California. In Oakland, California, according to a communique posted to IndieBay.org, a police car was lit on fire in an Oakland police parking lot. The communique wrote, one Oakland police cruiser was sabotaged in the Oakland administration parking lot. Cops and their SUVs watched and waited for the fire department to come. This took roughly 10 to 15 minutes while cops sat on their asses, afraid to approach the car. In the name of Tyree Nichols and all black people who have lost their lives to the hands of the police, fuck 12. Prisoners in Texas remain on hunger strike against solitary confinement, while last week people rallied in solidarity with detainees on hunger strike inside the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington. Detainees are demanding basic improvements and an end to brutality from the guards who attacked prisoners at the start of the hunger strike. 
A new report from Reuters writes that, quote, nearly 1,000 migrant children separated at the U.S.-Mexico border by the administration of former President Donald Trump have yet to be reunited with their parents. In Montreal, tenants organizing with the Montreal Autonomous Tenants Union, or MATU, continued action to demand a rent freeze. In Houston, Texas, members of the Houston Tenants Union marched against a slumlord while members of the Tenant and Neighborhood Councils, or TANK, in the Bay Area released their first newsletter of 2023. Also in the Bay Area, members of the Industrial Workers of the World, or the IWW, held a rally outside of a Berkeley business, Urban Ore, announcing a union campaign. Here's some audio from the rally from a member of the Longshore Workers Union. The labor movement in the United States and throughout the world, the bedrock of that, the cornerstone of what it looks like today, the best parts about it, is the industrial workers of the world. So I think everybody here, give yourselves a round of applause for helping rebuild that movement back up again. Anybody who has been through this process of forming a union knows how difficult and how scary it is. Anybody who has been through that knows that it does not matter how progressive your boss is. It does not matter if your boss is mission-driven. It does not matter if your boss is a progressive. In my experience, of the most vicious anti-union campaigns have come from bosses who've said, hey, I'm, I'm a progressive. I am a socialist. What do you mean they're, they're the same movement? I'm part of the socialist movement, but I don't like what you're doing. You might hear unions. You know what? I believe in unions. I think unions are great, but this is not the type of place where we need one. I can't tell you how many campaigns I have heard people, I've heard bosses or uh, outside anti-union consultants say, you know, we're just so inspired by the example that was set by Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers and Sister Dolores Huerta, and they, they paved the path for what we could do here. And it's because of that that we don't think this is the right thing for you to do. You think I'm kidding. I'm Meanwhile, in Brooklyn, New York, tenants in the Crown Heights neighborhood have launched a rent strike against poor living conditions and bad management. And the L.A. Tenants Union announced that tenants in three buildings were also launching a rent strike in the Los Angeles area. In New York, clinic defenders again faced off against anti-abortion protesters this month that included several neo-Nazis. Meanwhile, in Ottawa, Canada, hundreds mobilized to oppose a small far-right rally against a drag show at a local library. Actions in solidarity with the fight to stop Cop City in so-called Atlanta, Georgia continue. In the wake of the police assassination of Manuel Tortuguita Turan, who was shot and killed in a barrage of police bullets on January 18th. Since the assassination, several officials have dropped their support of the project. One glass company involved in the development efforts has severed their ties with Cop City, and thousands of organizations, publications, and individuals have come out in solidarity with the fight against Cop City, ranging from anarchist groups and collectives to mainstream environmental organizations such as the Sierra Club, Greenpeace, and 350.org. Over the last week, an independent autopsy and newly released police body camera footage are continuing to cast doubt on official police narratives that Tortuguita fired on police first, leading other law enforcement officers to shoot back in self-defense. As The Intercept wrote, Documentary evidence of the killing was scanned. State troopers, who are directly involved in the killing, don't wear body cameras in general. And why Atlanta police, whose officers were nearby, do. The department said in an initial statement on January 20th that no footage would be released from the operation, pending an ongoing investigation. On Wednesday night, 
However, the department reversed course and released body camera video from just after the incident. The footage appears to show officers asking whether the state trooper who had been shot was wounded by one of his own. You fucked your own officer up, one Atlanta Police Department officer is heard saying in the footage released Wednesday. He later walks up to two other officers and asks, they shoot their own man? After stating immediately that no camera footage of the shooting existed, GBI had acknowledged publicly five days later that footage did exist of the shooting's aftermath. Pressure against the project is building, as Teen Vogue reported. On February 2nd, Atlanta University Center Consortium, AUCC, student organizers occupied a weekly campus social justice and leadership forum at the historically black college Morehouse, for the university paper, The Maroon Tiger, to lobby the university community over Cop City. The organizers read a list of demands, including that Morehouse denounce and sever their support in building Cop City and that the college president follow suit. On the same day, a group of over 50 Morehouse faculty and visiting professors issued a letter calling to stop Cop City. There is an undeniable and direct relationship between the fate of Michael Brown and George Floyd as well as Tyre Nichols and the pending plan to build Cop City, it read in part. Across the U.S. and the world, solidarity direct actions, vigils and demonstrations have taken place, while pressure continues to mount against the various contractors working to build Cop City. Much like the broad threats by the state against another potential uprising leading up to the release of the Tyree Nichols footage, some solidarity demonstrations have been met with intense repression. In Columbus, Georgia, more than 120 riot police and undercovers monitored a rally of less than a dozen people. The Columbus mayor claimed that police would break up and arrest any crowd of more than 15 people. The protest went on anyway in defiance of threats from the state, as people protested outside of Brassfield and Gorey, one of the main companies which is contracted to build Cop City in Atlanta. While IGD has published several roundups of protest rallies and marches in solidarity with the fight to stop Cop City, here's a roundup of more recent direct action since our last update. In Boulder, Colorado, an office of KPMG, one of the financiers of the destruction of the land of forests, was vandalized with Stop Cop City slogans. In Portland, Oregon, an excavator was sabotaged in solidarity with the fight to stop Cop City. In Novi, Colorado, an office belonging to Atlas, one of the companies contracted to build Cop City, was artfully decorated with acid etching paint. An Atlas office in New York had its windows busted out. And also in New York City, an office of Atla Vista, a subsidiary of Atlas, had its windows busted out as well. A Wells Fargo bank, one of Cop City's top funders, was vandalized in Durham, North Carolina with paint and slogans. U.S. and Wells Fargo banks were also vandalized in solidarity with the fight to stop Cop City in Minneapolis. An Atlas office in Highland, Indiana was hit with a powerful stink bomb, while a Wells Fargo bank in Denver, Colorado had its windows busted out and was vandalized with slogans. Atlas offices in Fridley, Minnesota and Augusta, Georgia were also vandalized with Stop Cop City slogans and had their windows busted out. And finally, ATMs were sabotaged and tagged with anti-Cop City graffiti in Berkeley, California. 
Currently, there is a call for solidarity actions across the country from February 19th to the 26th with the movement against Cop City. Already, a wide variety of informational events, solidarity protests, and benefit shows are being organized. A post from Defend the Atlanta Forest on Instagram writes, Defend the Atlanta Forest Week of Solidarity, February 19th through the 26th. Find your group or make your own. Wolani Defense Society is a loose association of committees, collectives, and organizations outside of Atlanta working to defend the forest and stop Cop City. We understand the situation may be taking place in a specific city and a specific forest, but the entities behind the project extend far beyond Atlanta, therefore so must the struggle against the project. Currently there are support groups set up in Los Angeles, Oakland, Tucson, Austin, Charlotte, Savannah, Chicago, Carbondale, Minneapolis, and Eugene, Oregon. Check them out for upcoming events or organize your own. There is also a call for a mass mobilization in Atlanta, Georgia from March 4th through the 11th from a call posted to Instagram. Only self-organized resistance can save the South River Forest from destruction. Join us this week in the beautiful Wolani Forest to take a stand. Despite overwhelming local and national opposition to the construction of Cop City, the APF and their contractors continue to plan to destroy the Wolani Forest and build Cop City. The Week of Action is an open format event. You can organize any event during this time, whether it's a protest, barbecue, concert, or yoga class. Submit your event to DTFWeekOfAction at RiseUp.net along with a flyer and description. Together we can stop Cop City. Finally, we sadly report that longtime anarchist publisher and community activist Jen Angel has sadly passed away in Oakland, California. Angel was involved in a wide variety of anarchist projects, publications, and events like the Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair. Currently, there is a fundraiser that you can donate to that is being run by friends and family. It is linked in our show notes. And now for some upcoming events. On February 16th, there is a No Fash Fest at UC Davis in Davis, California. On February 17th in Eugene, Oregon, there is a book release and discussion event around the new title, The George Floyd Uprising. On March 10th through the 13th in the Wolani Forest in Atlanta, there is the Wolani Food Autonomy Conference happening. In May of 2023, there is the Healthcare Autonomy Conference going down in Durham, North Carolina. And finally, if you value what's going down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis, please donate to help sustain this project, subscribe to our podcast and our RSS feed, listen to us on Pacifica Radio, follow us on Mastodon, tell a friend about us, and if you enjoy this podcast, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us today. As always, enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. I'm Vishal Singh. I'm an independent journalist, documentary filmmaker, mainly based out of Los Angeles, also covering stuff generally in Southern California. Been focused on issues of protests, civil rights, far-right extremism, and uh, law enforcement. Well, let's start talking about the Twitter stuff uh, first off. Yeah. We all know that the Elon Musk has taken over in the last couple of months, and there's been a wave of people being kicked off of the platform, lots of anarchists, anti-fascists, left-wing accounts, and various journalists. But let's just talk about what happened with you. Yeah, sure thing. So, um, you know, my my reporting is distinctly um, from an anti-fascist perspective and an anti-racist perspective. Um, that's primarily the the voice that I'm speaking from as a human being, and that's the perspective that I've sought out to kind of highlight with my reporting. And uh, because of that, that's obviously led to, um, as it does, somewhat of a, 
of a narrative built around me by the far right that suggests that I'm some kind of commander of Antifa masquerading as a journalist who's doxing all these right-wing protesters merely because they're at a protest, when in reality, you know, I just showed up to protests to film them. I've been doing it for three years now, and um, I write about them on the internet. That's pretty much all I do, and um, the more I did that, the more I became a target in their eyes until the far right started naming me, started attacking me, started getting violent with me, and, you know, creating all these online campaigns, which kind of came to a head with um, a quite famous yet aggravating provocateur, Mr. Andy No, who has somehow um, become kind of obsessed with his little war against all anti-fascists. And I think I've become some somewhat of a character in his editorial um, scheduled narrative every week now of some kind of anti-fascist villain to kind of point the internet hate machine at. And um, as the Elon Musk era of Twitter was um, escalating as more white nationalist and all-out white supremacist accounts were being brought back to the platform, you had right-wing accounts, right-wing ideologues, people like Libs of TikTok, Andy No, Ian Miles Sean kind of coming to, to Elon Musk, who was already kind of a reply guy for all of these uh, all of these people and starts petitioning him, just specifically asking him, hey, can you ban this account? Hey, can you ban this account? And before long, um, Andy No and others are asking uh, Elon Musk himself to suspend me, to suspend other activists in my area and around the country. And sure enough, um, as many outlets, Business Insider, The Intercept have reported, there was kind of just a a purge of a lot of anti-fascist and leftist accounts, whether they were researchers, journalists, activists, um, we all, a decent amount of us got caught in the, the initial kind of, it was kind of a power move really. And, um, since then I have kind of migrated a lot of my journalism to other social media platforms as well as my own website. Um, it's definitely, it was definitely frustrating to lose a large body of my work, work, not just for me, that was cited by a lot of other journalism outlets on all sides of the political spectrum that were citing my work. And it's just like, you go back and read these old articles about serious protests, whether they're right wing or left wing or centrist articles. And lots, oftentimes people are citing my videos because sometimes those videos I filmed were the only angle of that thing. And so much of that reporting was disrupted by this. And I did go back to Twitter. I did try and keep doing it. I reported on a few other protests. I got um, some pretty exclusive scoops. And unfortunately, uh, once Andy No caught wind of it, he started uh, personally asking um, Twitter's brand new trust and safety head, who's somewhat of an Elon Musk loyalist, Ella Irwin, um, specifically started complaining to her about me, about uh, the John Brown Gun Club, about Crime Think, and uh, basically just begging her to suspend us until only hours after their conversation together online, uh, I was suspended again. Um, you know, which was frustrating because I, I've been reporting on the protests involving Tyree Nichols and, and so many other police shootings that have happened here in Los Angeles, um, Keenan Anderson. And, you know, it's, it's when those stories are kind of stripped away and they become 
Obviously, they're not gone. Twitter is a private platform. They can do what they want, but it becomes harder to obtain, harder to access for people within the community who were using that as a source, uh, whether it's other journalists, whether it's researchers. I, I was just talking to the ACLU last week where they were interviewing me about just unlawful assemblies because I've seen so many of them. And um, as much as it sucks for me, right, to lose a platform where I've built a large audience and all that, yada, yada. What's really frustrating is for other researchers and journalists and people kind of trying to archive the history of this moment, um, it becomes harder for them to kind of catalog all these instances that are going on in Southern California and beyond. Exactly. But that projection, I think he does it quite tactically. You know, it, it, it delegitimizes that accusation when it's levied to him, to his fan base, where he can say, no, 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 they're only saying that because that's what they do. And it cre- it, it just feeds, it becomes this feedback loop i'm sure there were people asking andy to petition musk since he's sort of a good conduit to kind of go down that list of folks and remove them it's true and i mean it it does a lot not just in terms of you know information that's out there but it also influences kind of the 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 weird you know elon musk even likes to call twitter somewhat of a town hall but it does become a place where a lot of media figures and journalists see as kind of a, a, a group think. And when certain perspectives are completely omitted from that group think, then all of a sudden you're getting less pushback on a lot of the far right propaganda and culture warring that's always going on to where if Andy knows is posting about an LA protest, you know, usually the first two people that would prove that would point out if Andy know posts something that's just a flat out lie usually either me or chad and now you're missing that counterweight where you know right matter how true or dodgy or just outright false something that andy no says is it's much harder for other people to hear any kind of counter to it this is my reading on it but it seems like a lot of those accounts are having a hard time getting the same returns that they did like i saw a tweet from the person known as quote cat turd yeah. Who is uh, I don't I don't even know what they are. I know that they like interact with uh, Elon Musk a lot, but they were complaining about the amount of uh, impressions they were getting. Impressions being sort of your interactions and how much people see you and interact with your tweets. And they had said like they'd only gotten like a million, you know, over the past month or something like that. Which for a large account is is pretty low. That sounds like yeah. a lot, but yeah. I mean for for a large account that's pretty low, especially something that's like going viral by replying to Musk all the time. Yeah. And you know, it's true. As laughable as it is, like hearing them like pinch pennies about a million impressions, like they are actually having very inconsistent engagement and they're constantly complaining to Elon Musk about that. And I think even Elon Musk is getting a little sick of, of, of being told that after giving them everything that the far right still wants more. And um, a lot of centrists, a lot of liberals are, are are really catching on because I think Andy and a lot of these other ideologues, libs of TikTok, especially like they've really overplayed their hand and they're so they can't help themselves. They can't help but like indulge in this sadistic cruelty to where it really pushes away the center that they otherwise probably would be able to use as a recruiting pool when they're talking about all oh, domestic, violent, leftist extremists. But then they lose that audience when they start bullying people for being a victim of a mass shooting or something. It's like, what are you doing? 
<laughs> you know, but Antifa is bad, but you know, hold my beer. I have to go hang out with these neo-Nazis, right? Exactly. Um, and people see through that. Um, I don't think there's a lot of people um, who respect Andy No outside of his circle. I think the danger is that his circle is growing. That circle of think is growing and it's starting to not really matter, you know, if he's, if he's not seen as legitimate because he's seen it legitimate in his own far right ecosystem that he's created well i mean he just recently he retweeted someone's like oh like just you know some account that was following around black block protesters at a tyree nichols protest and that same account on telegram was calling him a degenerate <laughs> right yeah yeah that was that was reported on by atlanta anti-fascists yeah this is for people that don't know so there was um neo-Nazis in Atlanta that I believe it was people associated with the group that Nathan D'Amigo, who's the former leader of Identity Europa, uh, is involved in now. He's supposedly, according to Atlanta anti-fascists, moved to the Atlanta area, working with Sam Dixon, who's one of these like really washed up, crusty looking, rich uh, white nationalists from like, you know, uh, the days of the mammoth. Um, but he's a former Klan uh lawyer he like represented a lot of famous like clan people but he's kind of like been inside the the richard spencer world for a long time spoken at like american renaissance but he has a lot of businesses over there so a lot of these younger folks end up working for him uh but uh the group that uh nathan was involved with is putting out like this you know counter research or photos from like the protests in atlanta recently and andy was sharing their telegram channel just openly but they, they've done that stuff in the past and it seems like they haven't really gotten much blowback. Well, exactly. And I mean, I mean, in my experience, I mean, even, even a lot of the people here in LA that Andy No kind of collaborates with whenever he does one of his threads about me, those are gripers. Some of them are just hardcore neo-Nazis like Grayson Arnold, who literally repeatedly loves to say um, Hitler was a complicated historical figure and, and generally praises him and is all constantly spreading lots of old neo-Nazi propaganda. And these are guys that, grace, that that don't even bother just filming videos and leaving it at that with the mis- deceptive editing. They're making like music videos and, and funny comedy edits out of me getting assaulted by far-right extremists. And Andy knows reposting those videos completely just raw with the Nazi watermark in the corner. And I'm just like, I mean, this is this just feels sloppy even for you. You must just... I think he just really just feels that safe, I guess. Yeah, it seems like as long as it doesn't say 1488 on it or or there's not like a swastika flying in the middle of it. Like as long as they can sort of have plausible deniability like, oh, I didn't know that that was a, you know, a white nationalist thing or blah, blah, blah. Then they'll try to pass it off or like until and, and like somebody maybe like writes an article about it. No, exactly. It's It's not really a space people are that interested in even. I, I think like maybe two or three years ago. You could have got something about it, but now it has just become the norm. Like I just people who are just like, oh god, that's terrible. They're like, also, that's not really uh, newsworthy at this point. Like we need something more. Yeah, which I think also speaks to like the wider culture on the right itself. Like you'll see in a lot of Proud Boy Telegram channels now, they'll just like be. I I don't want to say like it's news that they are sharing like white nationalists and neo Nazi stuff because that stuff was always there, but it seems more acceptable and more relevant. And um, maybe that's because the sort of the hierarchy and the leadership of the Proud Boys is somewhat breaking down in that play with so many of their leaders you know, possibly facing 
time in prison. And I know some of the chapters are sort of breaking away and becoming rogue or whatever. And some becoming openly white nationalists more so. And also like you have the Groypers kind of like coming into their own and kind of blurring these lines. It is. Well, like you said, they're coming into their own. A lot of these a lot of these white nationalists are young. They got into this from 4chan, from social media. Now they're learning the real ways to do it. They're learning the more militant ideas from some of the old guard, you know. I mean, I've been, I'm working on a story right now about a local um, Nazi collective called the Nationalist Network, and they're led by Ryan Sanchez, who's like an old school Ram guy, you know, rise above movies, friends with Robert Rundo. He's a former U.S. Marine, but he's kind of surrounded himself with these young groipers to try and like teach them how to do the real activism, quote unquote, you know, teach them the the right dog whistles and the, you know, wear a suit, go to your nearby Repu- young Republicans club and start talking about things euphemistically, build a, build a base. And I think some of the middle, mid, mid-range or more experienced white nationalists are taking this as an opportunity to try, kind of make their own autonomous little crews rather than rely on the leadership of someone like Gavin McGinnis or Enrique Tario or Nick Fuentes. I mean, a lot of the Groypers have kind of revolted against those kinds of figures. Yeah, it seems like we're almost sort of like going back to a resetting of the clock, it seems like. I mean, like we talked about this in the last This Week in Fascism, but there's kind of slew of new groups that are out. Seemingly, it seems like taking advantage of the space created by the anti-LGBTQ protests. It's a big unifying factor. The the anti-LGBTQ plus like complete resurgence right now and that culture war combined with I think the high that they have from um, the revert the you know the takedown of Roe v Wade I think that has kind of fueled this Christian nationalist fervor that a lot of white supremacists and white nationalists are realizing is a tactical advantage right now take advantage of that maybe don't push the race stuff as hard out loud focus on the the church stuff the jesus stuff the the like you know demonize trans people do that and build a strategic alliance with these other right-wing militant groups even if you know they have hispanic and black conservatives in them um i think they understand hey let's use those people Let's use them as a means to an end. And at the end of the day, those other groups might be trying to use them as a means to the end. At the end of the day, fascists can unify pretty quickly when they have a common enemy. And um, the the current boogeyman created out of the entire transgender and non-binary community right now is extremely potent. Um, I've been, I, I've seen it as a really potent um, target that they've had as a potential for a long time. And now it's finally hit its its climax, it feels like, where there's really no side of conservatism that isn't primarily built around, if you see a rainbow flag, shoot it. Again, that just seems like s- such a, a bizarre thing to focus on, you know? It's like drag shows, and that's really what you're concerned about? Like, not rent and climate change and you know, your house being flooded or being destroyed in a fire or the police killing you or being evicted or not being able to pay your bills. Like that's really what's going on in your world. Like what kind of world do you live in? But I think that's the point. I think again, you, you create these kind of zealotry fueled hate campaigns against small um, disenfranchised groups to completely distract the middle 
from realizing that they're being completely taken advantage of by the systems around them, by the political parties that they're um, kind of doubling down on because because of whatever culture war issue that they've decided to make their cult of personality this month, whatever Tucker Carlson tells them to be mad about this week. And it's, it works. It works. You, you have a lot of conservatives who know something is, is wrong economically. They know that they're having, you know, they might not care about climate change. They might not care about police shootings that much, but they know that they're having trouble affording eggs every week. And they know that they don't like inflation and they need they need someone to blame. And conservatism in the United States has always really found a a always has been good at finding a good um, target for that rage. So I, I think it's actually the fact that there's so much to actually be worried about is what's making it so much more powerful. This kind of anger and animosity towards LGBTQ plus people now that they've been the chosen christened target of the now where, you know, beginning of Trump, it was Mexicans, then it was Muslims. And then it kept evolving and changing. Is it the left? Is it the communists, the anarchists, whatever. But I think the right has found almost this perfect explosion of, of misinformation and then hate that works against specifically transgender and non-binary folks in a way that wasn't that they couldn't even get against gay, bisexual, and lesbian people, and now they're even turning that to their advantage uh, with things like gays against groomers, the LGB alliance. Um, it's it's really quite uh, it's really quite something, and I do think you know it's not that Trump hasn't been transphobic in the past, but I think he has stepped into new territory. Um, and it's so reactionary. It's so obvious that he's just trying to keep up with DeSantis, trying to keep up with what states have been doing. And it's it's working. And, and unfortunately, because of the power that Trump has as a figurehead, whether or not he wins or loses, whether or not he gets crushed in his primary, it doesn't really matter. Him saying that has such a deadly implication for everybody because he kind of dictates so much of MAGA world reality. And for him to go on this anti-trans rant and literally take out terms straight out of the libs of TikTok playbook and, and elevate it to this level of legitimacy that we've only seen at state level politicians and Republicans do that's that, that explicitly. I, I don't know. I think it's, it's going to make things a lot more horrifying, a lot more deadly. It's going to cost people their lives. Yeah. So let's talk about your article that's uh, just out in Daily Cause that, that talks about that. Yeah. Do you feel like this is an attempt by him to like out DeSantis, Ron DeSantis and sort of like come to, you know, the head of the flock and be like, I'm more anti-trans than everybody else. This kind of almost, to me, this really echoes the George Wallace campaign. Yeah. So, um, well, this, this was a, he made this post pretty, he's been making, so Trump has been making these almost um, consistent like daily videos um, and making a very presidential background, blah, blah, blah. And um, instead of doing the number of rallies he usually would be doing, he's doing these videos where he just rants. It's almost like a video version of a, of a tweet storm and uh, with, with maybe a script, maybe not. And today, yesterday's topic decided he, they decided it was, they were going to out DeSantis DeSantis when it comes to, um, demonizing the LGBTQ plus community, going after doctors, going after um, any government official or any government body that 
enables or assists the existence of transgender society and human beings. And um, I think what surprised me, like I've definitely seen Trump um, kind of glom onto these far right culture issues, sometimes well, sometimes not, but it's almost like everyone's chasing the horse. But with this, he was so much more explicit than usual. I think he he caught a lot. Uh, I think he recognizes, as most people on the right recognize, how um, how powerful it is to um, make the conversation about children, make it not about LGBTQ plus rights to their base, but make it, oh, we're protecting children from pedophiles. Because when you talk about pedophilia, you get whether whether or not what you're talking about is real or not, you elicit such an emotion out of people that it becomes a very uncontrollable force. And uh, we've seen that be weaponized against the LGBTQ plus community before. Um, it's not a new tactic. It's as old as it gets. I, I grew up in the Bay Area. I, I, my parents told me about the kind of nonsense that was coming out during the Harvey Milk days. So this is all familiar. And yet it's still all new because hearing this kind of stuff, um, when it has, um, when it's constantly being pushed into the culture where every week you have a, a, almost a clash between sides over the fight of drag shows or, or transitioning or, or puberty blockers, people misrepresenting the science of, of what happens for transgender people and basically pushing forward narratives that are statistically proven to invoke suicidal thoughts in the youth where these, these ideas are only endangering the youth, but only a certain, certain sect of the youth, a certain sect that I don't think they want to exist. They've been really smart about it. Like you said, you know, sitting around children or, centering around things that they feel that can be bridge issues with like centrists and people that maybe won't get on board with everything, but that, that will be susceptible to rhetoric around, well, we just want to stop, you know, the mutilation of children in hospitals or something like that, which of course is like something that like no one in theory disagrees with, but of course what they're saying is happening is just flat out not happening and they're just totally misrepresenting, you know, trans healthcare as a way to basically take away people's rights. Exactly. And I, I really wanted to highlight, especially in my reporting, because I saw other other publications, they were a little late to it, but they finally started talking about this this speech. And I understand not every Trump rant needs an article, but I thought this one was quite an escalation. And I think a lot of people online, especially a lot of LG, the LGBTQ plus community, saw this video and said, the G word, that's genocide. He's talking about genocide. That's what DeSantis is talking about. That's what we're all talking about. And I was really kind of um, growing numb seeing people say everything but, you know, anything but. They tried as hard as they could not to say that word. And I, I it was, my opinion on it, it doesn't really matter because Holocaust museums are already warning, hey, this is exactly the kind of situations that was happening in the Weimar Republic. You know, I, I quoted... Um, the Museum of National, uh, sorry, I, I quoted the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which is a living memorial to the Holocaust in New York, and um, they pointed out, you know, before 1933, Germany was a center for LGBTQ plus uh, community and culture, with several renowned organizations serving and supporting trans and gender nonconforming people. 
Hitler's Nazi government, however, brutally targeted the trans community, deporting many trans people to concentration camps and wiping out vibrant community structures, end quote. Now, that's not my opinion. That's, that's coming from the people who've spent all of their time um, trying to preserve the history of, of what happened during the Holocaust. And I think the, the trans side of the Holocaust has, has been heavily erased in the American education of, of Nazi Germany. And I think right now, as these these old um, these old kind of conspiracies are coming new again, and these these old um, anti-trans blood libels are are becoming mainstream and are becoming part of the everyday conversation on TV, on news, on social media. I think we need to be reminded that this specific thing has we've been here before. We know what this is historians know what this is, transgender activists know what this is, doctors know what this is, and it would behoove us as journalists to acknowledge what that is, um, which is genocidal rhetoric, which is being pushed by right-wing ideologues and now right-wing politicians and thought leaders. And do you want to talk about like explicitly what Trump was talking about in that speech? Because he often doesn't actually propose anything or legislation. What was he actually proposing? Right. I mean, that's what was honestly to me the most shocking part about this, how like thought out and and well um, communicated he actually had for a literal plan. This is his big camp. This is arguably his first big campaign promise that he's laid out. He's given a singular vision and his main points. He wants to pass a bill that falsely claims there's only two genders, you know, male, female. He gave a speech a couple of days ago saying the same thing. But again, this is different than just bluster to speech. This was very calm, cool, here's my plan. Pass a bill saying there's only two genders. Reverse legislation for life-saving gender-affirming health care. Ban all education of transgender non-binary issues in schools nationwide. Ban transitioning for youth nationwide. Sign in an executive order to end programs for gender transitioning for all ages. You know, he, he even said all ages nationwide. Criminalize and hunt down doctors and educators who try and, um, you know, help people learn and about transgender non-binary issues and try and save their lives and keep people alive. These kinds of <laughs> everything he targeted are all of the support structures in place to help transgender people in a society where they are already heavily disenfranchised and already being pushed to a, a complete destructive point. And rather than be explicit and say, oh, we need to wipe them out, instead he's saying, oh, clearly our culture is already sick of of this group of people. So let's just wipe away all of the safety nets that are keeping them moving forward. And everyone knows that that's going to lead to a spike an increase in, in suicides and in deaths of transgender non-binary people. And indeed a lot of right wing trolls online have, they understood the point. They understood that most of a lot of the trolling that I received for writing this article was specifically stuff taking into account saying, oh, you can't call it genocide when you're genociding yourself. You, you know, they, they love that they've created a, a, a weapon of genocide that, is, uh, that can be projected as self-inflicted. When in reality, people don't kill themselves because they're transgender. People kill themselves because they're being bullied for being transgender. So he wants to make it illegal not only for people that are underage to, you know, go to a doctor and receive, 
you know, gender affirming care or begin that process. But for anyone, regardless of their age. Exactly. He's talking about, um, you know, government funded programs. But he's also talking about going after doctors who go around this program. Right. So if he's saying, oh, um, private doctors can do what they want. He's not really saying that because he's also creating the same level of fear that's happening in, in, in lots of states where doctors are being threatened with legal action or with vigilante violence for doing things like providing gender affirming health care or providing um, reproductive health care. We're seeing a, a incitement of fascist violence, specifically targeting doctors in other parts of our community, you know, even city and local and national and federal officials whose jobs are pretty innocuous, just simple jobs, underfunded jobs to help just help people, help the community, what what people who want to stay argue a state is for. So what would you say to folks that would look at what's going on now and say like, well, you know, the Republicans didn't do very well in the midterms. This is going to blow back on their faces. Ultimately, you know, there's really not that much buy-in for attacking trans people. I can understand that point. And to a certain point, you know, there is truth to some of that because, again, radicalizing the base, that is a, a really useful method for conservatism, for the far right. And um, there are plenty of people who are apolitical, who don't really care about these issues, who don't always uh, want to talk about politics or whatever. And I would say that the apathy of, of apolitical people has always been a primary pillar of these kinds of eliminationist moments in political history. And you don't really need that many people to start doing something like this. I mean, you didn't have all of Germany outwardly being Nazi supporters. You just had enough of them not to care to where the Nazi party could gain enough power. And with the United States, the transgender population, the non-binary population, it's already pretty small, something that the far right loves to point out. And you don't need that many more people to kind of oppress oppress those groups. You don't need a majority to oppress a minority that's that small and that's that targeted with such explicit violence. And we've already seen it in things like the the Club Q mass shooting. We've already seen it in in the ACLU reporting that, you know, both this year and last year have smashed records for um, bills being proposed to kind of criminalize or uh, minimize the rights of transgender people. I mean, this is such a massive push that you can't, I, I don't think it's something that can be ignored. Um, it doesn't really matter how how many individuals buy into it. There's enough already here where it's costing lives and it's already making the potential for more violence. There's already people dead. So as far as I can tell, they've already got significant numbers and that's without looking at what's happening online, what's happening with all these culture wars and what's happening with how much engagement a lot of this hatred gets. I mean, at the end of the day, um, someone like Matt Walsh or Chaya Raichik can just completely guide our cultural conversation into any direction they want if they say a couple buzzwords about CRT or trans people. So, you know, I, 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 I empathize with that thinking, but I also would... Um, I would emphasize caution with people who think like that because, you know, we've been naive before. And, you know, I, I believe the New York Times originally thought Hitler was just um, 
throwing red meat to his base and and that he wouldn't really follow through. Oh, he's not really going to be that anti-Semitic, you guys. It won't be that bad, right? Right? You know, you can't you can't know until right, right, totally. Well, what about in terms of just like street level organization? Like, have we seen the peak of the far right out on the streets around this issue? Have we not seen it? Are we starting to see like a decline or diminishing returns? It definitely seems like a lot of uh, their attempts to do rallies and stuff are getting opposed. It seems like not enough are getting just overwhelming numbers against them. Well, I think what they're trying to do is is really center in on they're trying to center on consistency, whether they're not it's big or small, they just want to keep their numbers out there. As long as there's a drag show happening in any small town, they want to make sure there's articles about it. They want to sh- make sure there's public protests. And honestly, at this point, um whether they're countered or not doesn't seem to really slow down the momentum. Um, I think countering is really important for ensuring the safety of the community when a lot of these really militant and violent groups are out and doing their thing. But I also don't know if it's necessarily going to be a a method that's going to slow them down. Um, and, you know, I don't, when I look at any kind of activist, the number one thing I'm always trying to think about is effectiveness. Are they effective in their political goal in this sphere? And with the far right, I don't know if their goal is have massive rallies right now. I think they've looked at things like January 6th in Charlottesville, and they're trying to learn from mistakes like that, things that they don't want to get caught up in these giant federal investigations. I think they are reprioritizing to focus on small melees and small arenas that they can actually win. If you can't take the Capitol, why not take your school board? Why not bully your Planned Parenthood? Why not make people afraid to go to Walgreens to get an abortion pill? And to that end, they're having some degrees of success, even in more progressive places like, allegedly progressive places like California. Um, I mean, last summer I reported for Left Coast Right Watch News, I reported about a um, a intimidation and right-wing disinformation and rallying campaign against a local LA County high school district. They were just trying to um, get a reproductive clinic. It was partially funded. uh, It was partially planned with Planned Parenthood, but it was not going to provide abortions on campus. Didn't matter. The far right caught wind of it. Fox News was on it. The Proud Boys were on it. Other local conservative and Christian nationalist groups were on it. Before you knew it, they had massive protests in front of this tiny little school board, and they didn't know what to do. Um, there weren't really any counter protests. I don't know if any activists heard about it. I saw a couple local families protesting against the right wingers and they got horrifying vitriol thrown at them. And um, Proud Boys were doing pseudo security for this rally. And at the end of the day, I was just like, okay, another right wing rally, another one, you know, another one to get media coverage. Okay, we'll move on to the next one. And I thought that was the end of it. I was shocked to find out that they kind of won in Norwalk's school district, which is in the Norwalk La Mirada Unified School District, which is part of LA County, um, backed down and they canceled the project. And now there's high, a high school in LA County that just lost access to a reproductive healthcare clinic that those students wanted and that those students needed because a bunch of out of town 
Proud Boys and Christian Nationalists came to town and successfully intimidated those school board officials. It's actually really easy for them to win when they make their goals really narrow, really focused, and really um, locally based. And if they just keep doing that, I think they're going to continue being a danger and they're still going to have an impact on a lot of lives. I think most people will look at the story and not realize how many lives were impacted by just, honestly, there was only like maybe four or five actual proud boys there. Most of them were Christian conservatives, Christian nationalists, regular everyday Trump supporters. But that's the thing. The everyday Trump supporter is now as radical as those militant groups. And together, when they get together, they they can succeed in these small focused political goals. So what do you think that means for just going forward, people countering them for what you're seeing? I think it's important to overwhelm them. I think it's important to make folks realize that um, this echo chamber is loud, but it is an echo chamber. And um, when it comes to protecting LGBTQ plus rights, protecting reproductive rights, the middle of America is actually more likely to support you. And you can actually get a lot of people to sympathize with you. And you can actually get a lot of people mobilized to, to counteract a lot, of, a lot of these hate groups when they show up and try to intimidate. And if these small Planned Parenthoods, these small reproductive clinics, these small school boards don't see that, then how are they going to know? They, they, all they know is what they see. And what they see is that they're surrounded by angry people who are angry about this issue and they keep showing up until they stop talking about the issue in CAVE. And at, at a certain point, I think for a lot of these smaller targets, especially in small towns, um, they, they, they feel like they don't have a choice. They're just doing what's safe for their community. And what needs to be reinforced is that there is a community to keep them safe. And if they don't know that there's a community to keep them safe, then they're going to resort to caving. Yeah, and they're very good at that, especially when people are very loud and present themselves as organized. They're more than likely to cave. It's true. I mean, I, I, I when I was reporting on that, that school board story, I remember I, I, I talked to the mayor of the city, Norwalk. It's not a, a huge city in L.A. County, but it's got a lot of traffic there. And I asked him because he made kind of a general like, oh, thank you for everyone on all sides of the issue who let your voices be heard. And I asked him, I said, you know, how, but how do you feel about the handful of Proud Boys and other extremists who did participate in that July 18th rally? And he, he just said, look, the community has spoken. I applaud the community for engaging. Um, I'm not going to talk about any outside group's involvement. They, they're afraid to even say it. They're afraid to even speak it. Well, going forward, do you have any other thoughts? Where should people be going to check out your coverage and... I don't know. I'm just kind of curious how you see things evolving over the coming months. You know, one thing we were talking about hasn't seemed to be on a lot of people's radar is that a lot of groups seem are seemingly going to start protesting around uh, abortion pills and stuff like that. I don't know if that's something that you're seeing that, that a lot of far right groups are going to jump on board with. Where do you think this will play out as we go into the spring and summer? Um, you know, it looks like we've decided that it's already time for the presidential election campaign season. So that's going to fuel more culture warring as DeSantis and Trump kind of um, take pot shots at each other using disenfranchised communities as ammunition. And um, we're going to see a lot more um, protests in the streets. I think, I think for once um, the left is also a little activated in this moment right now. I think a lot of folks are, are getting really, um, 
really disgusted in the once they really see the numbers and see with the issue of police killings how things have only gotten worse since the George Floyd uprising. I think a lot of folks tuned out for the last two years and now they're tuning back in. And it looks like the far right is going to continue to be reactive against that. They're going to continue to counter. You're going to see a lot more um, political action on both sides. And I think, unfortunately, we're also going to see a lot more violence from the far right because they feel really emboldened right now. They feel really comfortable. And especially because they see themselves as the underdog right now. And because we're in a Biden presidency, even though he's so conservative, it doesn't matter. He's the perfect villain for them. They can really use that for momentum. Again, that I, that's what I keep coming back to. The momentum of the far right is staying consistent. It's building. And um, I mean, just... I know, what is it, in a couple weeks? No, I'm sorry. In three days, uh, here in Santa Monica, there's going to be a right-wing rally um, against abortion pills. It's happening right on the Santa Monica Pier, you know, very populated, tourist-heavy neighborhood. And I know there's going to be a a counter-protest to that from some West Coast um, activist crews that are opposed to fascism. And... um, It's going to be interesting. I don't think I'm going to be there. Um, Unfortunately, there's been a little bit too much heat on me. Um, The last couple of protests I covered, I was actually getting followed by some of of Andy Noe's affiliates and some neo-Nazi affiliates. So I'm going to focus more on researching these groups, kind of digging into what their next plan is, trying to figure out what they think... um, what they want to do next and trying to see how, um, how to keep people informed about, um, what the far right is doing, what the global far right is doing in terms of how it views United States fascism and fascism in Southern California, which is having quite a resurgence. And if folks want to follow, follow my reporting, I'll, I'll be publishing a lot of my writings to my website, vpsreports.com. You can also find my work on uh, dailycost.com where I dual publish my work. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of playing a tricky game, um, separating myself from Twitter, which has kind of cemented itself as like this uh, pillar in terms of journalism communication. But I think I've found a space between Instagram, Mastodon, and my own website where I can still keep people informed. And that's really all I care about. I just want to make sure people know this stuff is happening. My friends are scattered through all times and places. To stay in touch, we've relied on corporations. They buy us and sell us and charge us to use the networks that we created. Baby photos, old friends, and vegan recipes lost in the wind. Nothing in this world is free. You work for them. They're going your memory soon to be building crypto economies bigger than any country. Think about that shit. Come on. You don't even own your hot takes. All this ephemeral communication is trash. I'm a poet. Why the fuck I need a Facebook page? I'm not.
not a free speech absolutist Just not a fan of economists, cops and white supremacists The center cannot hold That's because today's centrists would have been railroad tycoons a hundred years ago Bezos and Musk dance on the scorched earth This watch channel Berkman's dagger in every verse Hope this one hits for the prisons The houseless and tomorrow's gallows While you're at it, read Nicholas Carr, the shallows Zeros and ones, they blind my vision I'm really with the shit, it's obvious who's just performing I came into the world to the bullet holes and key to bars hot My W9's is musician, but that's just how I start Throat not yet slit, so I sing this They shoot the cameras, leave no witness No peace to keep, I'm blacklisted There was never peace to begin with Throat not yet slit, so I sing this They shoot the cameras, leave no witness No peace to keep, I'm blacklisted There was never peace to begin with There's no peace to keep, no place to sleep Algorithm runs mad, there's no pace to keep Tech billionaires wanna shut it down History's taking hold, you can't stop it now Artificial intelligence seeks to keep the peace Neither predator or prey, I came to defeat the beast We are coming to burn the throne And when we tear it down, you will discover you cannot eat a crown Or feed your brother when his lips have been sealed Or when he's been put in a cell, it simply disappeared I don't wanna eat the rich, nor do I dream in guillotines But every time I close my eyes, it's harder and harder to dream The horizon is smoke And all the wealth in the world is morally broke I'm just trying to live, not trying to survive And raise my kids to have a future where we all can thrive Throat not yet slit, so I sing this They shoot the cameras, leave no witness No peace to keep, I'm blacklisted There was never peace to begin with Throat not yet slit, so I sing this They shoot the cameras, leave no witness No peace to keep, I'm blacklisted We're going to discuss Ron DeSantis today. I feel like we haven't really got a chance to kind of go back and actually look at him other than something that's been sort of an antagonistic force against Trump. I want to talk a little bit about sort of what's going on in Florida. There's a lot happening and what DeSantis is pushing there is very scary and I think it deserves us really looking at it. Also, Biden just had a State of the Union speech. We're going to look at that a little bit. But yeah, let's just get into DeSantis first. There's been a couple things that's been happening. Him and Trump are, are kind of sniping at each other. Trump, as we were talking about before we started recording, which is kind of hilarious, has been tweeting this stuff about uh, DeSantis partying with young women when he was a teacher, supposedly, and essentially implying that he was using alcohol to, quote, groom them. DeSantis is sort of on the move with a lot of things. Libraries and schools are having to remove, quote unquote, problematic books. Over the past um, couple weeks, DeSantis has banned African-American studies classes in high schools. He's also removed uh, progressive uh, administrators from college boards and replaced them with conservative ones that he has picked. I was listening to a speech he gave coming into office again, you know, after he was reelected and he was saying like Florida's where woke goes to die and all this stuff. I mean, really just doubling down totally on combating quote wokeism and all this stuff. What's happening in Florida is uh, really upsetting for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, a lot of us tend to see things like this happen in Florida and go, well, yeah, but it's Florida. And in a lot of cases, like, yeah, it's Florida, but also at the same time, like, this is also like fascism and it's scary. 
Um, like what DeSantis is doing, I mean, you know, there was a whole story that just got lost in the churn about DeSantis, like having, I think it's like a gubernatorial security force of like 250 people that he commands, right? He's banning books from schools. He's banning African-American studies programs. Like what else is going on here? You know, I mean, it's, they've been replacing the boards of directors at universities, right? They've been firing, they've been getting teachers fired. Like this is, you know, an attempt to infiltrate all levels of political power and to do that in a highly centralized, highly authoritarian way. So, you know, we've talked about national conservatism on this podcast before, you know, and so like what DeSantis does is, kind of interesting on this level in that like he does all the Trump MAGA stuff, right? He sort of has all that rhetoric and he uses all that language. Um, but the actual policies he's trying to impose really come a lot more out of a hardline national conservatism. Um, it's this use of government power unapologetically to crush any adversaries, Right. This is what's terrifying about what's happening with people like Josh Howley and even people like Ted Cruz is that they're speaking at these NatCon conferences and conferring legitimacy to them by doing so. But the people organizing these conferences are like former Amran people or people who are like, you know, in white supremacist student organizations, you know, things like this are like esoteric fascists. You know, it's this crossover exists on a national level in ways that are, are able to be seen. But I think when it comes to Florida, we see a lot of the outcomes, but there's not a lot of attempt to really look at why he's doing these things outside of a superficial sort of statement about him, you know, preparing to run for president, which I think is true, but there is a political project here. And I think that's important to keep in mind, right? Like there is an authoritarian political project that is coherent that is well-structured, that is based on an actual understanding of how Florida state government works, and on that level, significantly scarier in some ways than anything Trump was ever capable of, because Trump was incompetent. Right. And again, what these people have said it over and over, and we've talked about this on this show before, but you know, their desire is to see the state hurt their enemies. Yeah. So when they see DeSantis using the state in order to censor people, silence them, shut down these ideas. I mean, that's what gets the praise in those circles. Mm -hmm. So DeSantis is seen as somebody that can get things done. Whereas Trump just, you know, talks shit on Twitter or truth social. I want to read now from uh, this article from the guardian. It says last April, DeSantis signed the stop woke act, which prohibits in school discussions on racism, oppression, LGBTQ plus issues and economic inequality. Books that have not been officially vetted and approved must be hidden or covered lest teachers unknowingly break an ill-defined law against distributing pornography, a felony. On February 1st of this year, 2023, uh, those restrictions on academic freedom spread beyond Florida when the College Board announced its decision to severely restrict uh, what can and cannot be taught in a newly created advanced placement class in African American studies, cut from the curriculum, or in some cases made optional, was any discussion on Black Lives Matter, mass incarceration, police brutality, queer black life, and the black power movements of the 1960s and 70s. 
Writers who have been removed from the reading list include Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, and others. So, I mean, they're literally taking out sections of history. I mean, regardless of what you think about Angela Davis or the Black Panthers, I mean, there's no denying that the Black Panthers were an organization that existed in a certain set of time and are definitely historical things to discuss. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two other really important things going on that you're starting to see play out. You're starting to see this with like teachers that are starting to come forward and say things like, I don't actually know what is permitted or not. And there's starting to be court cases about this kind of stuff. Um, one of the things that has been said in the media is, you know, Really, you know, they just, it, the, the law is ill-defined and, you know, they could just define it better. But that's kind of the point. Like the arbitrariness is the point, right? Um, one of the things that gets said about Stalinism uh, consistently by historians is um, that what you saw ultimately was a sort of uh, intellectual repetition, right? That, that there was a certain language set that was considered objective language. And it became so routinized that, Literally, speeches were cobbled together out of paragraphs, copied out of books, um, because they constructed this sort of very specific narrative. Now, the reason they did that, though, is it's people were incapable of understanding what could be said and what couldn't, and how things could be said. So there became a language that was safe to use. And so that language in a certain type of publication became sort of the standard, and, and this persisted through the end of Soviet history, right? There were elements of this all the way through the early 90s. Um, and I would say probably even still. Um, but it was the arbitrariness that allowed authoritarianism to work, and it was authoritarianism that allowed the arbitrariness to function, right? Because what happens in that situation is it allows, in this case, someone like DeSantis to arbitrarily determine what is permitted and what is not on a case-by-case -case basis, because it is so ill-defined, this it's a similar um, it's a similar issue that a lot of people raised in the early two thousands around the definition of what counts as terrorism in the United States, right? That there were periods of time in the late nineteen nineties where, like, the Animal Liberation Front was the number one domestic terrorist organization released on this FBI list, you know, for like a number of years. And these were years where, like, right-wing militias were bombing things. Um, so it becomes this kind of space in which arbitrariness can function. And that entrenches political power, which allows for more arbitrary enforcement, so on, so on. And it creates a dynamic that's common in, in all authoritarian circumstances, right? Um, that really everything is just about imposing sovereignty. There's not even the illusion of equality in that process, Right. But what that allows him to do, and this is the second element here, and this is kind of getting at what you were talking about, is it allows him to engage in a much more subtle form of authoritarianism, which has to do with reality construction. So, you know, there's what I would say is superficial understanding of the idea of propaganda that we get from people like Chomsky, which are like governments and corporations control this sort of like structure of what is said and what isn't said, blah, blah, blah. And there's like evidence of that. It, it doesn't, it's not that simple. It, it's really, really not that simple. It's not a bunch of evil people in suits sitting around deciding what can go on. The, I mean, maybe at Fox news, but really outside of that, that's not really a thing that so much happens. What does happen though, say in propaganda regimes that function effectively 
um, and and this this can happen without malice. It is really these things function through the construction of a whole reality. It's not just about individual claims. It's about the construction of an entire worldview, a whole understanding of who we are in space, and the construction of that in to such a degree, in such a thorough to such a thorough degree that. All of a sudden, that understanding of the world becomes the way that we view everything, right? Even when that everything doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, I mean, we see a version of this with the bagger crowd all the time. They all repeat the same phrases and things like this. All of that is about you know signaling loyalty, right? And so these kinds of structures sort of allow for historical revisionism to exist, and allow for intellectual revisionism to exist and allow that to sort of infiltrate educational and media institutions, right? Because when that happens, there doesn't have to be evil government overlords telling people what to say. When that happens, what you've done is you've just created a space in which all speech reinforces the same set of assumptions, right? And that is what is happening here. That is why the banning of the books is so important. That is why the sort of attempt to cancel classes is so important. It's not just about disappearing people, because it also is about that, but it's about creating an intellectual environment in which that disappearance itself has disappeared, in which that's not considered even a thing that happens because the disappearance of targeted people is assumed. You know, and we... There are a lot of people who who study like queer history will talk about this and, and you know, will say like practices, the way we define sort of terms around gender identity and sexuality change throughout time, right? Um, the way that we understand them, talk about them, you know, make sense of that. It changes over time. But one of the things that hasn't changed is that it's been a conversation, right? It's been a thing that people have been trying to make sense of. And just because that was unacceptable to talk about socially doesn't mean that it wasn't occurring. But what it did was it disappeared the fact that that sort of discussion had been disappeared entirely to the point where it wasn't even acknowledged as being an existent thing. I mean, it's also, I mean, I know this is going to come as no surprise to anybody listening to this, but I, I find it hilarious too that, you know, if you think back to the kind of the early stages of the MAGA movement, you know, things like Turning Point USA, one of their big slogans was big government sucks or you remember hearing things like you know about quote the nanny state and stuff like this i mean how is this anything but the nanny state i mean the stop woke act which again i'm reading from the guardian which severely limits race-based discussions at school the don't say gay bill which forbids instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade and again i mean as if that's even going on, it's, it's designed to instill fear in people and make them exactly like it says, don't talk about gay, don't refer to it, don't, don't admit it exists. Um, now the DeSantis administration is asking Florida universities, quote, to disclose the number and age of their students who sought gender dysphoria treatment, including sex reassignment surgery and hormone prescriptions. So they want uh, universities to give them the amount of students and the ages of their students. They, they want them to report them, you know, to the state. Uh, this is some scary stuff. Um, you know, this is some really scary stuff. 
you know, when, when the government is making numbers and lists of people, uh, you know, teachers are terrified to even talk about these issues in class. I think the other thing too, is that I don't think this is going to have any impact on, you know, the way that zoomers and younger folks see no, the world. If anything, this is going to just more solidify it. Yeah. Well, and that, that historically has been what happens, right? Like at points in human history, when governments try to roll back things that people had fought for, there generally is kind of a bit of a death struggle over that. Um, that becomes a lot more difficult today for the state because it's a lot more difficult to control information today. Um, and so, yeah, every kid in Florida still has the internet. You know, it, it's not like they're not talking about the stuff on TikTok or they're not talking about this stuff in like, you know, Discord servers and stuff like that. Like, of course they are. You know, it's the idea that you can sort of eliminate a discussion because you eliminate it from schools has always been kind of a fallacy, but in a lot of ways, that's never what it's about. Yeah. Right. And I think that this is what's important. It's not about whether or not it stops the discussion. It's about asserting the government's ability to try. And it's about sitting there and saying, we can use state violence this way and we're going to. Right, and right. really, the, the only way to stop us is to stop us. Because if you don't, we're just going to do this. Like, that message is the important one, right? Like, that's what makes people disappear is fear of state violence, like arbitrary state violence, right? That's really what's being constructed in this circumstance. Right. Yeah. Enc encouraging just whole generations of people basically to shut up and go back in the closet, essentially. Or move. Yeah. You know, I mean, you think about, like, uh, just the generations of people in the United States that have fled whole areas, you know, mm -hmm. uh, people leaving certain areas to move to cities where being queer and trans, you know, isn't something that's like an omnipresent threat to their lives or less so, or the generations of African-American people, which, you know, left the South uh, to get jobs during world war two, but also to get away from white supremacist vigilante violence, you mm -hmm. know, that's really real. You know, that was a huge push from a lot of people to leave. Um, but yeah, to your point, I'm looking at another article in the guardian. Now it says it's talking about <laughs> Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, uh, you know, leading the state like in child, child mortality and uh, you know, poverty and everything are uh, you know, leading the U S sorry. Uh, and she's, giving herself a pat on the back for banning critical race theory in public schools, which I'm pretty sure was not being taught to begin with uh, as a preventative measure. And yeah, like you said, like this is just them manufacturing a problem and then championing themselves for doing something about it, which to them is a huge win. It's like, they don't have to address anything. They don't have to fix any sort of problem. They just manufacture this crap as this omnipresent threat, get people to believe in it and then they can pass a law against it and just sit back and congratulate themselves on a job well done. Yeah. Well, when you control the media landscape, right. When you've banned people from talking about certain stuff on radio stations and, you know, you've started going around and banning books from libraries and you've created that sort of that sense of an alternate reality, right. These sorts of things get reinforced, you know? And so it's not even just that, it's creating a problem that they're then dealing with. They're creating a problem that they are convincing people is something that needs to be dealt with. 
that is a real actual thing that could be classified as a problem. Um, and to do that, I mean, what's become incredible about this process in the last like six years has been how far out of their way they have to go to convince their base that the cities are smoking ruins and that, you know, there's going to be, um, you know, woke teachers like brainwashing their children and Antifa is coming to burn down the suburbs and like all this stuff. And they have kind of a bit of a problem right now, I think, which is that things aren't great in America right now. Like they're not, but they're definitely not 2020. And it doesn't have the feeling of immediate collapse anymore. And so increasingly, those messages are hollow. They're not resonating, right? And they will continue to resonate with a certain base. But that base keeps getting smaller. You know, because again, kids have access to the internet and they leave small towns, right? And they go other places. And there isn't the ability to control populations in the same way that you could in like the 20s or the 30s. Um, there's mass transportation and, and communications now that most people have access to. Um, I think what will get really, what, what will become really critical in Florida is going to be whether DeSantis hits the point of going too far, um, because there's going to be a point somewhere. Uh, with Trump, it was eating lunch with Nick Fuentes. That for a lot of people was a point too far, right? And it's really going to be this question of like DeSantis, who's a lot more savvy and a lot more charismatic in a lot of ways, um, whether he calculates that effectively or not. Because if he doesn't, he'll lose everything. But if he does, you know, I mean, he's, he's a contender in 2024. I don't know if he'll win. But he's a contender in 2024 for sure. Yeah, and it's interesting too because, I mean, Trump, as we talked to in this episode with Fashal Singh, a journalist, Trump is basically trying to out-anti-trans him now. You know, this yeah. is sort of kind of like the race that they're involved in. And um, again, it just it's interesting, you know, when Trump started off, he sort of tried to tout himself as – you know, a friend to the gays. And uh, yeah. there's that famous photo of him holding up a pride flag that said, you know, LGBT uh, for Trump. And now that narrative has like totally shifted. Yeah. And uh, now it's like all of those people are groomers or there's yeah. like, you know, gay people are cool as long as they hate trans people or something like that. Well, and it has to do with something you brought up earlier, this, this idea of big government, right? Like Turning Point USA. Like, what do they really mean when they're talking about being against big government? Because it's not really about that. They mean taking some of the money that we're using for the military and, and helping poor people with it, especially yeah, black right. people. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, like what, what they're talking about is they dislike the use of the power of the state when they don't view it as being in their interest. And they love it when it is there to be in their interest, right. right? I mean, you see this with like, quote, states' rights arguments. Like, it is totally cool. Like, Republicans spent years trying to pass constitutional amendments against people that identify as being of the same gender getting married, right? As a federal law. They've been trying to federally ban abortion for decades, right? And they hate big government. It's an incoherent argument, but I think that the incoherence of the argument tells us a lot about DeSantis, right? Because DeSantis doesn't even 
pretend anymore to you know be a sort of traditional small government Republican. He's just openly embraced populism, and he's openly embraced this idea of the use of government force. Um, that's what's actually kind of terrifying about this, is it's not quiet. It is now just very out loud and seems to be getting the response that he wants currently. You know, that's the thing that's that I think we all need to be paying attention to. No, again, I mean, we've said this before, but I feel like the the libertarian veneer has totally slipped. It's not something to make sense of, I think. And, and this is sort of the most relevant point when we're thinking about someone like DeSantis and really where people like DeSantis and say like neo-Nazis on Twitter find their kind of point of commonality. Um, and that is that language doesn't mean anything to these people. <laughs> Right? Like, you could be a libertarian who loves Ron DeSantis. Language means nothing at that point. Like, literally nothing. I'm not even being hyperbolic. Like, terms mean nothing anymore, except what their sort of emotive affect is. It doesn't any longer matter what conceptual edifice you're building, because a lot of them don't make sense. And a lot of what's coming out of the right wing is entirely incoherent politically. Um, but that's not the point because ultimately a lot of right-wing politics has always functioned in the realm of reactionary confirmation bias, right? It's always been about creating justifications for things that, for feelings, mentalities, positions people already have, right? Or it's about reframing dynamics that already exist, right? But when we're really sort of like watching this happen, we are watching this sort of complete erosion of language. And what that means is language becomes purely instrumental. So like when DeSantis is writing laws that don't actually have any practical enforcement mechanism or writing laws that do, right? He's doing both of those things for the same purpose, which is you know reinforcing state power but using language as a weapon in that process, right? And this is where like liberals misunderstand the far right completely. Um, you know, in the liberal mind or in the kind of mind of people in the center, um, all politics is parliamentary. It's all about discourse and discussion. And there's no other purpose for language. Right. It's this like completely strange perspective where like, quote, free speech is the most important thing that could ever possibly exist. But at the same time, if you say that negative negatively impacts anyone's life, well, language doesn't mean anything and you're just being too sensitive. Right. Like that mentality makes no sense. And we can start to see why they echoed that language when you listen to people like Richard Spencer talking about how like they never actually really meant those things. But what they did was talking about that in that way got them the space that they needed to gain toeholds into other platforms, into other, you know, sort of groups of people, right? They were using language as, as a force, like as a material force. And DeSantis is doing the same thing. Um, Trump does the same thing. But again, the difference with Trump now is Trump doesn't have a lot of power anymore. Um, and when he did, they weren't entirely, uh, you know, a lot of the people that, that were in the administration were uh, sort of completely inadequate for the jobs that they were in, right? Just entirely incompetent. 
Um, DeSantis actually has a group of people around him that are capable of implementing things like this. And so when he's using this kind of language, he's using that language as a weapon. That language is there to create a reality, a certain kind of reality, which justifies the state violence, right? And it becomes this sort of spiral. Um, that's not something that gets dealt with through parliamentary discourse because it doesn't exist as parliamentary discourse. It's language used as material force, right? It's not an attempt to have a discussion. And so when we're talking about resisting things like this, it doesn't matter whether you win the argument at all. Right now he controls the state, you know, state police and things like this. And that's what matters is the ability to mobilize force, right? What becomes really complicated about things like that ultimately becomes, again, what happens when that, if that process accelerates and happens on a federal level, what happens the next time a January 6th comes around, right? We could have a different outcome. And it really is this material process of having to shut this kind of politics down. It's not about discussion. It's not about winning arguments, right? It's about community self-defense and autonomy and our ability to be able to live the lives that we want to live in the face of state violence. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important for all, I mean, this is going in a whole nother direction, but I think it's also important to really articulate where our ideas are different than sort of this corporate capitalist wokeism that is sort of omnipresent within most of the mass media that exists. Yeah. Well, and I think that this is like the Democrats have a big problem here. Right. And it's, it's not that DeSantis is doing stuff that is like contrary to their policies. It's the fact that they do, they can't respond to it. They have no way to respond um, because what's happening is about material repression. It's not about, again, winning arguments or passing policies. Um, and so when they try and enter into that world, they try and do so from this perspective of look at how wrong these people are. Look at how off their facts are, blah, blah, blah. Fine, whatever. That's not the point. Like they completely missed the point. And so <clears throat> when we're talking about something like what's happening in Florida and somebody like DeSantis, the Democrats have to either figure out a way to respond or continue down the pathway that they've been going for quite a while. I mean, I would argue like since 2001, uh, probably even before that. Um, but this path in which people cease to see them as an entity that is capable of any sort of political activity that, you know, where I live, people vote for Democrats because they're not Republicans, right? Not because they do anything. And there's this kind of sort of mentality of just assuming that they won't fix anything, but it at least will get worse more slowly right? That's not a great place to be coming from when you're an electoral political party. You really probably want people to be more enthusiastic than that. But the problem with the Democratic Party at this point is for years now, not only have they taken deeply reactionary positions about things like gay marriage, for example, or the Patriot Act or the war in Iraq or things like that, like not only was that part of this process. But the fact that when they did decide to sort of cynically change their position on those things, they were not capable of doing anything to back that up. 
Because the best that they can do is argue about it. That's it. But DeSantis and, you know, people that are in the national conservative movement, people that are in the MAGA movement, they're not interested in that. They could care less. It's not about discussion. If it were about discussion, they care about elections. But as we're seeing increasingly, that is not a thing that they care about. Right. What they care about is power. Right. The DNC has no way to respond to to that sort of activity because it exists in a context that is entirely outside of the context that creates an entity like the DNC. Um, And so, again, I mean, like this is really this point of distinction, you know, if we are going to be able to act against a person like DeSantis, we have to act against a person like DeSantis, right? We have to do things to defend our communities from state violence. Um, We have to do things to defend our communities from the enforcement of these laws, right? And that's not about winning a discussion. It's about being able to mobilize and defend one another and be able to fight when necessary, right? Because that is the realm that we are moving into. If 2020 did not convince people of that, then watching this happen should, because we are moving into a space in which discussion and discourse means less and less and less and less. And increasingly, it becomes about naked state violence. Yeah, now I feel like we're at the point of you know, threatening that or trying to scare people with potential jail time or losing their yes. jobs. It seems like people are waiting for the the shoe to drop. I mean, you know, originally there was a lot of uh, student walkouts around this stuff. I get the feeling that, you know, we're headed to a point in which, you know, this might come to a boil because of like uh, some sort of court case or somebody getting fired maybe. Um, and then this, you know, going into the courts. I don't know. How do you see this like playing out in Florida with all this? Yeah. Stuff? I, I think that it, it, there will be some sort of trigger event. Like what you're watching in Florida happen right now is really f- interesting to me in that like you're starting to see people really organized down there. Um, like people down in Florida are, are doing really awesome work right now. And, you know, it's showing up in things like being able to resist right-wing protests of drag shows and things like that. But a lot of that work is is coming at the tail end of like real solid organizing, right? And you know, that's what's necessary in that context. And so who knows what the trigger event will be, but people are creating conditions in which there can be a trigger event, right? And so that could be a teacher getting fired. That could be the fact that they're replacing the boards of trustees at colleges all over the state and students might occupy a university. Who knows? I mean, I, I'd actually be really surprised if uh, New College didn't get occupied by their students in the next like couple of months. It'd be really shocking to me. Um, because that school has that kind of a history. And so we're watching all of these things get pushed to their breaking point, right? And right now, there seems to be the capacity and the momentum to actually meet that, which is amazing, right? We're kind of watching these sort of conflicts break out all over the country where you're seeing these sort of you know, situations in which institutions that usually had unrivaled power, like state governments, are able to be successfully challenged, right? Not discursively, but materially, right? We're watching acts of refusal increase, right? Often subtly, often quietly, but we're seeing that become more and more and more a part of everyday life, right? Um, the longer that this sort of activity persists, the, the longer that the state engages with us as a material force, the more likely it is going to be 
that that's how people are going to engage back. Um, the state always functions materially, but in liberal democracies has this veneer of discursive parliamentarism. But as Democrats fail over and over and over again, legislatively, it stops being a viable path when your adversaries are openly and physically attacking you. Sitting there and hoping that policy gets passed doesn't really cut it anymore. And so, you know, the Democratic Party in Florida has been in a bit of a crisis for kind of a while. Um, they've been losing power in that state for years. Uh, and who knows what will be the result of this, but this could be this could be the trigger point for some big shifts in Florida politics. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.